Manx Radio Podcasts, powered by Shaw. Hello and welcome to the Women Today podcast, where we look back at some of our favourite bits from the past week. And we met Michelle Berry on Thursday, who talked so openly about having womb cancer, a disease which is rarely talked about, despite it being the fourth most common cancer overall. And it led on to a really interesting and at times amusing conversation about what we call private body parts. Also this week, we wore beards for a day find out why. And Dot Tilbury joined us to tell us stories about a late, great Manxman. But first, our younger woman today, Michelle Jameson, has gone off to university now. So before she left, we put her to work again. So we have the Gap medics in the studio uh, and we were speaking to them before the break. And obviously their experience in Tanzania was absolutely fantastic. They've just got so much to say about it. I'm interested to know what your advice would be, uh, just one sentence or so, not so much, about other people that might thinking about experiencing this. Charlotte, we'll start with you. Um, if you're considering it, just do it. Just like, You can never, ever regret what you see out there and what you get to do. Just do it. Definitely. Anna? Yeah, pretty much the same. Just go out and do it. It's, it's definitely worth all the preparation and the hard work that you have to put in to get there but once you do it you you just won't regret it because you do have to pay for this experience well we'll we will just uh, put that out there rebecca what about you um even if you're struggling for money there's like so many ways you can fund it like fundraising i just think it's the best experience of my life and i would recommend it to anyone who wants to go into any form of medical field pooja um, I'd say definitely go out and experience it because there's nothing else you can you can compare to it, especially when you live on this island. You have to go out and just explore different things, otherwise you'll never know what it's like. And Matty? It's so amazing because even if you don't have an interest in medical in the medical field, you should do it regardless of what you want to go in to because you learn so, so much from it. Is that actually a possibility? Yeah, you even if you wanted to be a a lawyer or do maths at university you could go out there and still learn and be in the hospitals and it doesn't necessarily mean that you want to be a doctor you just get to see the exposure to the hospital absolutely fantastic well thank you so much for joining us on the show today it's been great fun uh this is the last younger women today for a little while uh christy and beth will be back with you tomorrow for women today and thank you for joining me michelle jameson and charlotte anna rebecca Pooja, matty all in the <laughs> studio oh we've had a little so sorry, cough at the end there <laughs> <laughs> okay till next time bye-bye it is 20 to 3 now Beth, I am very impressed with the fact that you still have your beard on. Do you know, I hadn't noticed that you'd taken yours off. And I don't, <laughs> no, I don't mean horribly. When did you take yours off? You're supposed to be wearing it for the whole show. About 10 minutes ago, it was just getting a bit hot and itchy. Do you know what? This is made of wool, Christy, and it is very uncomfortable, I'm going to be honest. Um, I quite like the fact I can play with it though you need you need to meet my friend ed who has the most magnificent beard and he has people just come up to him and saying can i just stroke your beard please really yeah it's it's fantastic i will i will show you a picture of it does he comb it he does he combs it he puts oils in it Uh, he has one of these mustaches that he can twist he's on our film festival committee so if anyone was at the festival they'll have seen him over the weekend he sort of twists the end of his mustache as well so it's fantastic. Anyway, <laughs> our studio guest this afternoon is the unbearded director of the Manx Aviation and Military Museum, Ivor Ramsden. Um, and Ivor, we were talking about uh, how the museum is absolutely crammed full of artefacts. It opened back in 2000. Any idea of how many you've got? Yeah. Um, strangely enough, we're, we're just heading for our 7,000th acquisition. 
Um, I don't know what it's going to be. It depends what comes in through the door in the next few days. Um, everything that comes in, we log, we record it, photograph it, measure it up and everything, keep the detailed description of it. So it is quite intriguing. I'm hoping it's going to be something spectacular and not just a, a button or something like that. And where do all these things come from? From everywhere you can imagine, mainly from people on the island. Um, stuff comes from across, from people who've had um, relatives working on the island in the armed forces or similar to that. Um, we've had a few things from even as far as Australia, where a guy whose father was in the Royal Australian Air Force served at Jerby in 1944. So we got a wonderful collection of stuff from him. And, you know, do you ever find yourself on eBay looking for, for military history articles like that? Yeah, we, we have bought a couple of items from uh, internet auction sites, shall we say. Um, only things with a, a specific Isle of Man link. And um, we have got... Uh, some really interesting items. A uniform that belonged to the commanding officer of RAF Andreas back in during the Second World War. Um, items that were associated with an American guy who was killed on the island. Things like that. Fascinating stuff. What's in your artefact wish list? What do you really, really want to see come through your door? Well, a, a working Merlin engine. I keep going on about these things, don't I? Spitfire engines. But a working one of those would be nice because the one that we've got is broken. Um, but no, we've welcomed absolutely anything from a button to a Bible to a, I don't know, a box of anything, really. Um, so if it's got a link to the island's military or aviation history, we welcome it on board. Now, these, these items do all have sort of stories behind them. You talk about the aviation history, and I was asking you before, uh, what is your favourite story or what are one of your, what's one of your favourite stories? And you came out with this brilliant story <laughs> about a frog. Yeah, the frog. It's probably the most famous amphibian on the Isle of Man now because I tell this story to all the school children who visit the, the museum. Um, during the height of the Blitz in 1940, there was a big bombing raid on Liverpool one night in September. And one of the German aircraft that was supposed to be bombing Liverpool for some reason dropped its four bombs on Cronkneary Lay, which, to those of you who know it, isn't the most strategic target in the middle of the Irish Sea. It's just a big rock, basically, covered in heather. Um, so for whatever reason, this aeroplane dropped its four bombs, made four big craters in the side of the hill, and uh, killed a frog, which somebody found the following morning and it was handed into the Manx Museum, and they've still got it. It's not on display regularly, although it does come out on special occasions. It recently had a foray to the uh, House of Manannan for an exhibition there. But I remember it as a kid, and it's probably the reason I live on the Isle of Man now, that to come into the island on holiday as a very small boy, I, I remember this black and crisped frog in a, a display cabinet oh. in the Manx Museum. It's interesting, you mentioned um, this is a story that you tell to school children and we had a, a, an email from one of the teachers at Ashley Hill who says we go to the Aviation Museum every year, it's brilliant Iva is so patient with the children, we normally do some fundraising to make a donation uh, Two things there, I suppose in trying to inspire this next generation of aviation enthusiasts because I suppose you might think that uh, people who are into this are a little bit older generally yeah I think that is that was the case a while ago but certainly now that the subject of World War II particularly is being taught uh, in the history syllabus at school the kids lap it up all the teachers say that it's one subject that really does inspire them so I don't have to work very hard I just show them some of the things that we've got in the museum 
tell them a few stories like the one about the frog and they, they seem to just lap it up. Now the museum is staffed by volunteers as well. How many have you got? We've got about 12 regular volunteers who actually staff the place. We haven't got enough to double up unfortunately. It would be nice to have two people there. One can sort of help with enquiries while the other can do other things. But we've got enough to go by, but we always welcome new volunteers. And the need to expand is something that you hinted at earlier. Um, there are plans which are sort of sort of sketched out at the moment, but nothing set in concrete. What do you need to make that happen? Um, a lot of money, really. Um, our funds are limited. They're OK for keeping the day-to-day running expenses at bay. But this a new building, which ticks every box that we've got is going to be an awful lot of money. We're looking over half a million pounds to, to build it and fit it out with display cases. So it's very much a pipe dream at the moment, but we we hope that somebody out there might be able to help us at least partway along the, uh, the road. And in terms of the day-to-day running costs of the museum, how much does it cost to keep it going? Ah, good question. Our treasurer did a, a bit of a, a project on that recently. <laughs> I can't remember the answer. It's, I think it averages out something like £250 a week, something like that. That covers electricity, rent, which we have to pay rent to the the government. Much as I love our government, I don't like paying them rent, so yeah, I won't go there. Um, the intruder alarm needs to be paid for and everything. It's not a huge um, outgoing, but uh, it has to be raised from somewhere. And generally, you find people are quite generous with donations. We got 600 pounds just uh, the other weekend. Yeah, that that was amazing. Some people are very, very generous, yeah, and yet we get others who'll come around and don't put anything in the the tin. It's, you know, it's entirely voluntary, but we, uh, I, I do... I am rather surprised sometimes when people ask you lots of questions and you give them lots of information, a bit of personal touch, and then they, they wander away without making a donation. It's what, a bit disappointing. What is the reason, though, that by going for the, for the donations rather than just setting an, a nominal fee for people getting in? When we first opened back in 2000, we charged a pound uh, entry fee just for adults, children got in free. And it was our patron at the time, Air Marshal uh, Ian McFadden, who was the governor, he suggested that we drop the admission fee. He said, why don't you drop it and see what happens? So we did, and we were stunned. The first weekend that we dropped it, we had publicised it quite. Uh, widely and we were absolutely inundated with people I thought good heavens you know they're charging a pound put so many people off and as a result of the increased footfall donations went up sales in the shop went up and our income probably doubled that first year it was amazing incredible um so many stories at the museum can you tell us about some of the prominent female figures in Manx aviation history yeah, there aren't very many, unfortunately. Um, and really, none that are homegrown or none that spring to mind. We've got quite a few illustrious aviators who've got connections with the Isle of Man, probably starting with Amy Johnson. Um, she was a Yorkshire lass, like me, apart from the last bit. Um, <laughs> Uh, she came to the island in 1933, which was a couple of years after she'd flown solo to Australia. She came with her husband, who was also an intrepid flyer. Um, just on a, a visit, they were hosted by the governor and fated everywhere, given civic dinners and everything. And Amy planted a tree in Glen Helen, and that's still there um, to this day, with a little plaque at the bottom of it commemorating her visit. But back then, you know... A, A female aviator, an aviator of any sort, was pretty much akin to an astronaut these days. You know, they they didn't grow on trees. But a lot of the 
background work with the Royal Air Force and, and the Royal Navy on the Isle of Man were, was done by ladies. Um, at Ronald's Way, which was a Royal Naval Air Station, um, there was something like 1,500 ground staff at the airfield, and the great majority of them were women. And it, it wasn't just the administration get people, it was people who were loading torpedoes onto aeroplanes and things like this. Even servicing the aeroplanes, it was done by girls. And they were girls, you know, some of them were, they probably weighed about six stone, wet, wet through, you know. Um, and over the years we've had quite a few of them visit the museum because it's on their old home patch and some of the stories that they've told have been quite interesting, shall we say. One or two have not been aren't fit to repeat <laughs> in public, I'm afraid. You have to come to the museum and I'll tell you in private if you're interested. But uh, yeah, there was one memorable occasion when a, a, a bus tour pulled up at the, at the gate and an elderly lady got off and made her way into the aisle, into the museum and she she had just that look in her eye, I thought this isn't just a random visit and I managed to get hold of her and start talking to her and she'd been stationed at Ronald's Way as a, uh, a mechanic on aeroplanes and she had a handbag with her which was bulging with stuff from the time and she was there in 1945 and it was after the war had ended in Europe and things were easing up a little bit. Um, Ronald's Way airfield was going to close and every week there was a dance organised by one or other section at the airfield and she got all the passes, all the tickets for the dancers and all the dance cards which were full of names of all the people who she'd danced with, you know, and it was, it was wonderful. She was a really lovely old lady and it was her who told me the story of the, uh, the last train from Douglas on a Saturday night was uh, known as the Passion Wagon. Can't think why. <laughs> Women Today, brought to you by CityWing.com for your next flight away. I might be able to pick up a few handy hints and tips from the new children's activity marquee, which is being hosted by expert bread maker and inspirational food demonstrator Linda Hewitt. We are so delighted that Linda's been able to join us this afternoon. And uh, Linda, you live in Lincolnshire now, but you were baked and raised in the Isle of Man. Yeah. It does make me sound like a prize heifer. Corn and bread. I was thinking bread, you see. Yes, bread. There was yeah. a bread link there. I thought, it was, I thought that was clever. No, okay. no it is right. clever. That's fine. And it's absolutely true. <laughs> and your Manx roots are still very important to you? Yes, completely. Yeah. Why is that, would you think? It's who I am. Um, besides always wanting, growing up and wanting to change my name, everything about growing up in the Isle of Man I'm very very proud of why did you want to change your name I think it was just one of those growing up things my sister will understand if she's listening and <laughs> um, well mentioned that your your Manx route is very important to you and you actually chose to honeymoon in Port Erin yes why was that <laughs> it's kind of a family tradition really um I grew up um swimming in the sea and um the the Liverpool University used to have an association, the Marine Biology Station was there, um, and the Cosy Newt Cafe is there, and I just love Port Erin, so swim there regularly, and my poor husband had to honeymoon there too. But I've got some great stories if we have time, um, and an apology to make to somebody who lives um, on one of the back roads. Oh, we, oh, you should oh, tell I'm us now. Come on, now. Come on. Oh, yes, you come can't on. just drop that and leave no. it. <laughs> Our honeymoon was in winter, um, but my sister had a honeymoon there. My parents had their honeymoon there. Gosh, we don't fall far from the from the tree, do we? Um, <laughs> but anyway, it was October, and um, I think we were the only honeymoon couple. Do you reckon? Water, probably, <laughs> um, and the people at uh, 
the co-op felt very sorry for us because um, when mentioned with in fact they knew when we came through the store so when we went to buy our sausages we were having a barbecue down at Langness just the two of us but we had no wood and we nicked some out of somebody's driveway isn't that <gasps> awful um, but we thought they wouldn't mind six Aww. six pieces of wood for a honeymoon couple having a fire down at Langness you're oh. not talking from the actual trees like chopping them down and taking no, it's from their wood pile at the bit but it was inviting us isn't that awful it's temp you can resist anything but temptation so we had the sausages the links of love the people at the co-op told us and i oh. asked for half a dozen sausages and they gave us 12 they thought wow. we needed the energy <laughs> <laughs> well if anybody was ever wondering what happened now they know now they know an apology uh, live on the radio this afternoon thank you linda um Tell me, I know what a, a bread maker is, what is a food demonstrator? I've called myself, or kind of relabeled, called myself a food demonstrator because I do anything, anything that involves food. So I'm working with Robinson's for the weekend um, at the Isle of Man Food and Drink Festival, but I've just been hosting a bread course at Denman College for the WI. And when I leave the island on Tuesday, I'm a judge at the World Bread Awards down in London. Um, I've also worked on housing projects, so anything from one-to-one -one bread to food demonstrations, working with celebrity chefs and demonstrations at Hampton Court Palace and everything in between. So it kind of covers all of it, but it's not about me, it's about the food and passing on um, recipes and cookery skills. I mean, I'm going to learn a lot from Pam today, oh. and we've already talked about Kipper Kedgeri, and uh, next will be a stealing a bonnet recipe. So it's all about passing on information. Stop talking about stealing, right? I'm a bit worried. <laughs> yes. Yes. Lock yes. down everything. It's okay, I've got hold of my pen. Oh dear, we'll be yeah. checking your pockets when I you like leave. to share. Mm. <laughs> um, now you say that you are 50 plus, you're a survivor of cancer, and so you no longer feel guilt and only mild embarrassment if you're caught singing and dancing in the kitchen or binge TV watching. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, clearly going through cancer must have had a tremendous impact on your life. Yes, um, but you're so busy fighting a disease like that, um, especially if you've got a family. Um, and can I just say deep respect, you have three children. I'm sat opposite somebody who looks young and radiant, and I'm thinking, my God. Um, so two children and a husband that stood by me and an awesome circle of friends and family. And I feel they probably suffered more than I did because I, I just had tunnel vision, just get on with it. But it was, it was a tough two years, yeah, and a cell transplant um, stem cell transplant and you're quite open about what you've been through because it must be difficult to talk about um, I got some very good advice when I was diagnosed um, from a friend who subsequently died from cancer and he's also a swimmer and a big talker and he said that you must talk about it you've got to share it and the people that can relate to you they'll be there to support you and it gives people the opportunity to hide away if they don't want to. And so I do believe in all this business, sharing our history through storytelling with Pam, talking on the radio. We survive through talking communication. And so, yeah, I found it easy to talk about it, actually. And a, a huge inspiration, I suppose, for anybody who's going through something similar to see you uh, mm. on the other side. I hope so. I hope so. Um, and myself and my family have done a lot um, of sponsorship as well. So... Now, some of that does involve swimming. You are a swimming fan, as yes. you, you hinted at. You've been swimming in the sea every day since you've been here. Yes, and I'm meeting the some of the Manx open water swimmers as I come from here. So I could dive down through the window, actually, you and could. once around the Tower of Refuge. You <laughs> don't wear a wetsuit. 
No, I don't need one. I've got Biopreme. Pardon? Biopreme. <laughs> oh, right. Did you steal that from somewhere? No, I grew it myself. <laughs> um, but some of my favourite facts about you, Linda, your talents aside from bread making and uh, swimming, actually, you can swim straight and feet first. Yeah. Now, if you've ever been in a swimming pool, you'll probably appreciate that a bit more. And my sister picked me up on the grammar of that. So if you're listening, Carol, I'm going to explain it all now. Um, swimming straight is actually quite a good talent because most swimmers, especially once they get out into the open, they zigzag all over the place. So if you're taking part in an open water event or a triathlon, you can swim twice the distance from zigzagging. But I can swim straight. And then feet first is an awesome skill, not least because you look so graceful. And if you've painted your toenails, again, you get a chance to show that off. But it, um, it strengthens the wrists. So Jack Coop, if you're listening, because he's a master's um, coach on the island, Everybody should be made to do a length of feet first at the end. So right. it gives you sculling skills. Now we wow. know. And it works on your abs, sorry, because you've got to keep your feet up. Of course. Yeah. Yes. Uh, you can also quilt, speak Norwegian, and joint a chicken in three minutes. Yeah. What a terribly useful skill that must be. <laughs> Sunday dinner out at yours, Linda. Hey? Anytime you like. When did you discover you could do that? I've learned to do that. I mean, I didn't go to the University of Bread Buns and Chickens filleting but uh, I think you, you might be discovering how to do that at the food festival so I shouldn't laugh too much oh, do you know Christian and I were when we read about that Linda we were like could we go down to a supermarket right now and get, and a, get chicken? a chicken for you to because do it yeah it's just so tempting if anyone's got a spare chicken in their car that they could just deliver up here that would be brilliant we'll film you doing um, it just to prove it Stuart has texted to say I should ask you about bungee jumping without a bungee down by the arches uh, broken <gasps> arms were had apparently yes Yes, you see my Manx history. Oh my goodness. It's all going to come I out knew, today, Linda. I was very nervous doing a WI talk yesterday because I knew my history would come back and bite me on the bum. And who was that phoned in? Stuart. Hello, Stuart. Thank you very much for all your support. Because, well, yeah, I'm, he got me to the hospital. <laughs> oh dear me. <laughs> it's me. I imagine there's going to be more stories before the end of the show. I really hope so. On the show today, we hear about a memorial concert to mark the life of a true and very popular Manxman. But Arbury Street was terrible before the war. The buses used to go up, the single-decker buses used to go up Arbury Street. And many a time, there was so much of a traffic jam that people used to jump off the bus nip into a shop, buy something and back on the bus. <laughs> well, that man was Ian Qualtro. He passed away earlier this year at the age of 90. He was hugely involved in so many aspects of community life, uh, perhaps best known, though, and loved for being an entertainer at events around the island with a, a very sharp eye and an exceptionally dry wit, I think it's fair to say. And someone who was his sidekick at many of those events is Dot Tilbury, and she is also with us this afternoon. Dot, do you remember when you first met Ian? I do. It was um, when I left school, I went down to work in London and I came back to the Isle of Man and I thought, oh, I want to get involved in sort of a bit of local culture. So I went to the Braid of Steadford and I had an Auntie Joe who did Manx dialect poems and thought I would learn a poem for the Braid of Steadford, went up. And it was at the time where you had to lie down on your bed to put your jeans on and I had my words in my pocket in case I forgot and halfway through, of course, I've got the words and sort of tried to pull out these words and they all ripped and everything. So, of course, Ian was a judge and he said, and then we had uh, Dorothy Kelly pulling words out of her knickers. And I thought, <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> and from that day on, I thought, 
God, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to write my own words so I can read them. Now, what logic in that? And that's how it all started. It was Ian Qualtro's fault. And then I got, uh, he invited me down to his house and he used to do this double act with a chap called Walter Collister. And him and Walter did the ventriloquist act. I don't know if you've seen it or not, but it was a very, very funny act. And he had a, a, a rickety old film of him and Walter doing this act. And he looked at me and he said, do you reckon you can do it? And I said, well, I'll have a go. And I didn't know either, whether I was playing the ventriloquist or the, uh, the dummy. <laughs> anyway, we did a bit of practicing and went out. And we, I don't know how many hundreds of times we did it. But every time it was different. And every time I'd fall about laughing because Ian was just so funny, the funniest man ever. And... Um, you know, towards the end, he was forgetting his words, and um, I'd be sort of going through each other, oh, tin of pears and a tin of peaches and things like that, and he'd be going, what? <laughs> so we'd have this conversation because he was sort of getting a bit older then. And even when he was in his latter days, when I went down to see him, and he'd forgotten a lot of things, but I always used to say, name four fruits beginning with tea, and he used to go, tomato, tangerine, tin of pears and a tin of peaches <laughs> <laughs> and he remembered and another um, famous joke from that particular sketch was um, there'd always be an, an MHK in the audience and um, I'd look round and I'd say um, uh, Jeff Corkish um, said to, I don't know Howard Quayle, what are we going to do about the homosexual bill and Jeff said, pay it and then <laughs> <laughs> And that used to, you know, sort of half an hour later, people would still be laughing. And it was, uh, it was just so funny. And, um, you know, I went to his funeral and I spoke to his sister who lives in Canada. And she said, do you know, she said, Ian was so lucky to find the gang that he found to go around doing concerts all over the island. Because I think one Christmas we did about 17 concerts and had 16 Christmas dinners. And and um, I said, well, on the contrary, I said I was very lucky and we were very lucky to be with Ian because he was the best company. This afternoon, we're going to talk about why there's still something of a stigma when it comes to discussing female health issues, which, as a result, can lead to too many women delaying seeking medical advice when there's something wrong. And our guest in the studio is Michelle Berry, who's raising awareness about the fourth most common cancer affecting women but one that isn't very often talked about. And I should say at this point, uh, we may be talking about some issues which could be uncomfortable for some listeners, but we think it's really important to raise the profile of this particular cancer amongst all others as well. Um, Michelle, what are we talking about? Um, we're talking about um, uterine, womb, endometrial cancer. And this is something that you have had personal experience of. You were diagnosed, what, nearly a year ago? Um, I was diagnosed on October 5th of last year. So how did you know that there was something wrong? Oh. Um, well, I started out having um, a urinary problem um, and um, I, I turned 50 this year and um, I had um, like passing clots after having sex, which, you know, that's not right. Uh, painful sex. Um, I could sneeze and I'd feel a, a really sharp pain deep down in my pelvis. Um, bladder issues. Um, my period slowly dwindled away. Um, and I wasn't in menopause because I eventually had a blood test done, which showed I wasn't in menopause. But, you know, they had just disappeared. 
But I guess because you were approaching 50, some people would say, well, that's a normal thing. That Yeah, that I kept being told, to yes, because you're going into menopause, yes. So how much did you know about womb cancer before I you were diagnosed? knew nothing about womb cancer. I knew about cervical cancer and I knew about ovarian cancer because they're very much in the media profile. They're talked about. It was talked about when Jay Goody died. Um, I knew about ovarian cancer because of it's called the silent killer, but knew nothing about womb cancer. So you got this diagnosis start of October last year. I imagine it's it's difficult to put into words how you felt when you received that news. I was devastated. I knew there was something wrong with me. I kept going to doctor's appointments and I'd come back and I would say, you know, look, I, I tell my best friend, I said, there's something wrong with me. And um, I even had a colposcopy. I went through and had, after I was having the, you know, passing the clots after sex, went to the GP he referred me on and um, I had a colposcopy and that came back clear and uterine cancer can't be diagnosed with a you know having that kind of a test um so when I got told I was I was you know how did they you know I just couldn't see how they missed it but um yeah it's uh, it was it's uh, devastated me if, if it can't be picked up by the means that you're talking about how actually was it found in the end um by a pipette biopsy it's incredible to think that this is the fourth most common cancer and yet we don't really know anything about it. In terms of, of how your treatment plan went once the diagnosis was eventually made, what did you have to go through? Um, well, I had an MRI, which then showed my showed the tumour. Um, I got sent to Liverpool Women's and I say, uh, went over and saw the consultant, the surgeon there, um, was scheduled for a, a hysterectomy. Um, which that didn't bother me so much, but uh, it was it has been the loss of you know the hormones and stuff that has bothered me a lot. Um, it's and then after that I had um, and I have to say that my surgery was quite difficult. My uter uh, my bladder was fused to my uterus. Uh, my tumor was the size of a tennis ball. I had to have a very large T cut on the inside of my vagina to pull the tumor out whole with along with my uterus, so it was encapsulated so they didn't spread any. Um, so the Recovery from that was quite quite a long time. I got the histology. I had to go back and get the histology of it, and I was told that the um, I had cancer cells in the microcapillaries of my uterine wall, and my tumor was one centimeter away from the edge before it had like grown outside of my, my uterus. So um, I had to make a decision. I had to decide if I wanted three internal brachytherapy uh, radiation treatments, or did I do five weeks of external radiation therapy or and, and, and one brachytherapy. So weighing up all the odds of deciding what I needed to do, I did the five weeks. Physically and, and mentally, I imagine, this past year has been a complete and utter roller coaster for you and your family. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been difficult. I mean, I have good days and I have bad days. And where are you now as far as treatment goes? Um, well, I'm in the, I go back every three months um, and they, you know, they check me over to see, you know, if there's any signs of um, the return of the, my, my cancer. Um, I now, because of the radiotherapy, I've got permanent nerve damage in my legs. Um, I can't, sometimes I, I can't even, because our, our bedroom's on the top floor of our house, sometimes I have to crawl up the chair the stairs to get up to the our bedroom and our bathroom. So let's talk about womb cancer then. I mean, you mentioned some of the symptoms that you experience, the bleeding after sex, that that feeling in your stomach what are the other symptoms that women should be looking out for um well um urinary problems um same kind of symptoms as you would have with like cervical cancer and stuff um but yeah basically it's the pain in the pelvis um 
abnormal bleeding, um, especially for women that have had their menopause and have stopped their periods, um, bleeding for them. Um, at one point, and this is a part where that's probably not very pleasant, um, after when I, I could go for to go for um, a wee and look in the toilet and there was tissue floating in the, t- in the toilet. And at the time, you know, I just kind of thought, okay, that's a bit strange. But, um, and now I found out that that was my uterine lining um, coming off, coming to shedding as my tumour was growing into my uterus. And what about the risk factors? Who is most at risk of, of developing womb cancer? If you have a uterus, you're at risk. So this um, Well, I got told it was an older person's, older woman's cancer, but I belong to um, a, a forum online for its womb cancer support group. And um, there's girls 18, 20 that's been diagnosed with this cancer. Um, one girl was told that she was... Um, just having very heavy periods and eventually she her mother kept taking her back you know saying there's something wrong with her there's something wrong with her and they finally did a scan and she had uterine cancer and now she's had to have a hysterectomy and well michelle we are going to be finding out later about uh, an event that you're holding to raise the profile of this disease and also uh, raise money for for two charities and we'll be talking about that as i say later but i just wonder why it is that we are still so bad about talking about intimate health issues because it, it doesn't make any of us feel very comfortable and you know I said it, it's delaying some women seeking medical attention and that ultimately could just could be so serious. On my, um, I've got an event page for uh, my event and um, uh, I've been taking um, links from the Eve Appeal which is one of the charities I'm raising money for and also just different um, w- uh, different pages on uh, Facebook that have been posting um, things because September is um, Gynecological Cancer Awareness Month and um, it said one of the things I posted said that 44% of UK women don't know the proper names for their female reproductive organs. Yeah, I think that's, that's probably it yeah, probably is right actually yeah. yeah it probably is right so I don't think I could name them all. No. Ooh, I don't know, but is, this is an interesting um, question. I was talking to, to Dr. John, and, and we'll hear from him in just a moment, actually, because I don't know how you felt, Michelle, actually going to the doctor and, and just talking about these issues, you know, way back when all this started. Is it something that you, you felt particularly uncomfortable with, or are you quite happy talking about any aspect of your body? No, I was quite happy with it. Um, Do you think that's a different upbringing? Is that- probably, yeah, probably, because um, Americans are more open, um, I suppose. I, I mean, I don't know, I'm, but I'm just quite... Um, you know, I'm quite a, uh, out there, so uh, it's probably it could just be me. But the, I mean, it's key though. I mean, you, you knew there was there was something wrong, so you you kept going back until you got the right diagnosis. And I think that is fundamental to what we're talking about this afternoon. Is if if you feel there's something not right, that you need to just lose the embarrassment about it. Yeah, because obviously our, our immediate instinct, if we're told by a medical professional, is oh, it's fine, there's nothing wrong. Our immediate instinct is to think, okay, well they know exactly what they're talking about, so I'll just go home and and leave it. You know, so it's difficult, isn't it? Because it, I'm sure that is mostly it is absolutely fine, but it is your body, and so if you do still continue to feel something isn't right, it is just that knowledge that it's okay to go back and say, oh, do you know what, I still think there's something just not quite right here and they're not going to judge you for it, they're just going to help you and deal with it hopefully. So. Well that's what I was talking to Dr John about a short time ago and asking for his opinion really on how we deal with embarrassing medical issues and this is for men or women mm-hmm. um, and he has this advice about what to do if you're deliberating about whether or not to go and see the doctor. Oh please come, I, I mean I, I realise obviously it is difficult to begin to talk about areas that you don't talk to anybody about but that's what we're here for, you know for us dealing with 
uh, all of the bits of you that you don't tend to talk about is bread and butter. We do it every day of the week, and we are quite happy to try and allay your fears. Would you, frankly, prefer to sit at home worrying about what might be or what you've Googled or what your neighbour's cousin has told you, or would you prefer to come in and have a, a two-minute conversation with a doctor that may feel a little bit difficult to start with but come out feeling better and reassured or at least knowing that something's going to be done to, to, to make your mind uh, at ease? Uh, I would say the latter. I hope most others would too. And we are also asking um, listeners today, Dr. John, what we should teach children about private body parts and what we should call them as they're growing up. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this. Should it always be the anatomically correct version of the words or, or other words okay? I don't actually feel terribly strongly about this. Um, I mean, everybody has euphemisms. I think the important thing is to be open and to communicate. What What's What's not terribly healthy is refusing to discuss things or shying away from things or running away or saying it's dad's job or it's granny's job or whatever. I think the more we talk about uh, our, our private areas or the areas of our bodies which don't normally get talked about, the less stigma there is attached to it, the less of a problem it is, and the more your child is likely to come to you then if there is a problem later on. If you talk to them, they will talk to you. That's probably the, the most important message I would give. I don't actually think it matters personally terribly much what you call it. Okay, Dr. John, uh, with some very good advice there. When teaching kids about their bodies, why can't we just call a spade a spade? Or a penis a penis, Beth. And you wouldn't be able to say it. Is it that it's an issue. <laughs> I, 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 yeah. See, you just can't say the words, can you? Go well, on, say Well, I can. It. I can say them. And I have, I mean, if my children ask me, and as they have asked me, you know, what's this called? I would always tell them what the right word is. But in day-to-day -day conversation, I think I struggle. Do you think it matters what you call your body parts, Christy? Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, obviously, there's something quite cute, isn't there, about little ones kind of using different words for their body parts. And it is kind of funny. And But it, I do think... I do think it could present these problems that we're talking about now, that from a very early age, if you're not told the correct words for your body parts, then you kind of think, well, isn't that then instilling this idea that there's something wrong with them? You know, there's something wrong with using the word vagina or penis. Like you were saying at the very top of the show, you couldn't bring yourself to say it. And so and I wonder if that's partly to do with the fact that when we're little, we're told, oh, no, call it your flower. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Which is cute and everything, but surely it's in a way it's not very helpful. And, and what, what do we feel we're achieving by not telling them the word? I quite like Dr. John's point of view on this, though, is that as long as you're sort of talking about it and you are open and you don't sort of make it into, you know, something an dirty and, and, and an issue, that it's OK. And we just need to normalise that aspect of it. But mm. as I say, I mean, I would always you know, tell my children the right words if they ask me. But, you know, they've sort of opted for girl bits and boy bits, which I think is OK. It I is. But, but then at the same time you know you don't give your elbow a different word do you know what I mean you don't no, so that's right and then you do do you end up uh, sort of breeding this generation of children who are the ones that go to the doctor and say I've got a problem with me you know yeah. <laughs> sort of looking down what's your view on what you should teach children Michelle um well I've, I taught my kids to have a cute name for it I mean in Oklahoma we call it a hoo-ha <laughs> <laughs> um but I think the one thing is um that I think society over the years has got it to where the word vagina is a vulgar word or, yeah. you know, you're, um, you know, those kind of proper names for it. You know, oh, that's a dirty word. You don't want to say that. That And that's, I think, where I'm coming from. But I, do, I can understand why at the same time, I suppose they're probably quite difficult words for kids to say simply, you know, sort of the word vagina isn't an easy word to say probably for a child. But I do, like you said, I just think it's that idea of it possibly creating this this notion that there is something wrong with it. And there clearly isn't. 
We've got lots and lots of thoughts on this one. Um, Kirsty says, I've got a friend who's very particular about calling them the correct anatomical... That's hard word. I'm proud of myself saying that. Uh, about calling them the correct names, but I don't call it a vulva myself, so it feels weird to call it that. We are front bottom and willy here. They say bits at Playgroup. Um, Judy says, I think as long as you know the meaning of the word, it's fine to use nicknames. Um, I know what my child means when she says them and she knows what she means. Language is about communication and I don't need her to say the right word for me to understand what she's talking about. Yeah, and on our Facebook as well, uh, Wendy says, I just tell them the truth. Kids aren't stupid. It's more the parents being embarrassed. Jane says, as you were saying, in our house, they're referred to as lady bits and little boy bits. Sarah says, I hate silly names. The only one that's acceptable, in my opinion, is Willie, because that's a colloquial name a lot of people use, but doesn't sound ridiculous. And you know what's funny is even reading out these comments, I feel really uncomfortable. I know. Well, I've avoided (laughs) lots of them because I think, oh, no, I don't want to say that. There you go. But is that because I'm uncomfortable because I'm thinking, or people are going to be listening going <gasps> what she just said so then we've all got a problem haven't we oh yeah what do you think on this one let us know one double six one double seven and it is now time to find out about another heroine from manx history we're joined once again in the studio by pam crow um <laughs> okay pam so who are we talking about today well my heroine for from history this month is sophia jane crane now she was born in lonnon on the 3rd of november in 1833 and must have been a very proud mother in time because one of her daughters was named as one of the most important people of the 20th century. That was named by Time magazine. Now, Sophia was born in London, as I say, but shortly afterwards they moved to North Quay. Her parents had bought a guest house and it was at this guest house that she met her husband-to-be, Robert Goulden. Now, at the tender age of 18, uh, that's more or less what you look now with three children, but still, at at 18, she married uh, the guest that she'd met, Robert, who was actually a man on the make. He he started as an errand boy and ended as a very successful businessman and and a politician. But they obviously had something in common because he was very politically active. Even at that time, he was a liberal. And so they married and moved to Manchester where he started this calico printing firm. And he was elected to Salford Council. But the... Sophia started attending political meetings and of course in those days and bearing in mind by this time she had 11 children 11? well no 10 living oh 10 living children oh which was which wasn't unusual actually in those days that was not unusual and so she didn't have any babysitters so she took her daughters with her to the political meetings which were really about rights for women and also um, they were campaigning to end slavery. Her husband was a, a big campaigner to end slavery. So her daughters grew up in a household where politics and discussions of the day were obviously being talked about all the time. And one of the things that they um, felt, which was I think Sophia must have been very cross about, was I felt certain she would have wanted her daughter to be further educated, to go to college, university or whatever. But Robert, the father, insisted that no, girls had to be prepared for marriage, to be a wife and a mother. And so she was sent off to Paris 
to a finishing school. Now, I'm not quite sure what she learnt at this finishing school, but she obviously came back very much the sophisticated lady. Gone were the days of the rough-and-tumble teenager running round the glens of the Isle of Man because, of course, they still kept their home here. They had a home in uh, Strathallan Terrace that was their holiday home. They came back a bit like every year, you know, back to the Isle of Man. But this young lady arrived back from Paris at 18 and, and even her sister commented about how different she was as a woman. And then at 20, she announced to her father that she wanted to marry a gentleman who was actually 24 years her senior. And so I'm not quite sure whether the, the father then uh, actually thought he had done quite such a good job, you know. But um, however, um, to carry on, Sophia and her husband retired back to the Isle of Man where she continued to support the work for women's rights and, of course, was very proud of this daughter that she had. And through their endeavours, of course, as we know now, the Isle of Man had, was the first place in the world to have votes for women. And, in fact, what was uh, interesting today, I was trying to check if they actually used their votes and in the first vote after the legislation had been passed, the first two people to vote were women, which I thought was absolutely brilliant. At any rate, um, sadly, Sophia passed away, as I say, before she saw her daughter named by Time magazine as one of the 100 most important people of the 20th century. And the citation says, she shaped an idea of women of our time. She shook society into a new pattern from which there could never be any going back. Now, I think you've all guessed who that daughter was. Of course, Sophia's daughter was Emmeline, who married Richard Pankhurst in 1879. And with his help, he was a great help in this, she fought for the, the right for women to have the vote, and they won. Incredible. That is so inspiring. Oh. Love and that. Sophia's grave, I understand, is at Braddon Cemetery. Or yes. Old, yes. Is it Old Braddon Church? Yes, it is. Yes. Because um, Kate, uh, who used to, Kate Holland, who was a former presenter on Women Today, uh, did an amazing programme mm -hmm. uh, looking at uh, women in politics. Um, and she went to the grave, and it was an incredibly emotional thing to listen mm. to because, you know, obviously without Sophia. You know? Exactly, and it wasn't just Emmeline, her, her one daughter, her other daughter, Mary, was, was totally active as well. And there was a, a real division in the family because Mary continued in, I think, a more militant way than Emmeline. And Emmeline did a lot of good works. Um, she was a, a great campaigner against venereal disease. She went and lectured in the United States. I mean, so she wasn't just politically focused. I think she was co more community focused as well. So it, a woman to admire and I, as like mother, like daughter. Now, my daughter will be horrified if she's listening to this programme. <laughs> horrified. I think she'll but be But her husband would agree. <laughs> Just makes you proud to be Manx, doesn't it? It yeah, really does. Really but again, you know, as we said last time when we were talking about Joanna Cruikshank, who I know didn't hail originally from yes. the Isle of Man, but played such a pivotal role over here. 
why don't we know about her? Why yes. didn't we know this already? Well, I, I do think it's a shame, and I really do think that the school should make some time for Manx history. I mean, you know, it saddened us the last time we put the internment exhibition on. Not one single school came to see that exhibition. Many of the people that came to see the exhibition in Port Erin, 20, 30-year-olds, who'd lived there all their lives, had no idea that, that it had been such an important place. 4,000 German women and children in our tiny village. I mean, it, it just is amazing. And all, and the same with Sophia. I mean, she should be remembered. Someone should go and put on election day. Someone should go and put a wreath on her grave, you there, know? There is a move, I understand, for a statue. There yes. is, yeah. Yes, yeah. but um, I hope it is something perhaps in the way of suffragette jewellery, you know, that um, the, the they wore jewellery that, denoted in purple and green and white so it could be diamonds emeralds and aquamarines if you were rich but very much more simple stones if you weren't and and you know maybe just keep the colors alive and uh, but yes so yes i think we should definitely honour our Manx heroines. Thank you so much for downloading the Women Today podcast. As ever, if there's a guest you'd like to hear on the show or something you think we should be talking about, then we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us via email. It's womentoday at manxradio.com or you can go to the Women Today Facebook page, like and follow the page while you're there or we're also on Twitter. It's at MRWomenToday. Until next time. Goodbye. Don't sit in the slow lane. Join the fast lane right now with Shaw's all-new Superfast Plus Broadband. Enjoy more bandwidth, amazing speeds and the best value on the island from just £23.95 per month. So don't be left behind. Get a piece of the high-speed action with Superfast Plus Broadband from Shaw. For details, visit our stores in Douglas, Ramsey and Port Erin or click shaw.com. Love being Shaw. Terms and conditions apply.